Some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Saviour's birth is celebrated, this bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then, they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome, then no planets strike, no fairy takes nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is that time. Marcellus to Horatio and Bernardo in William Shakespeare's Hamlet. And it is that time of year. Whether it be so hallowed and so gracious, only you could say. But Christmas is upon us. The decorations are up, turkeys are nervous, and advertising agencies across the world will be taking a well-earned break, I'm sure. As will you, I hope. But if you're not quite there yet and the holiday spirit eludes you, there may be a few noble delights from some of the world's greatest wordsmiths might just be enough to get you reaching for the mistletoe and wine. Hello again. I'm Paul Ham, and thanks for downloading I Am Ham Presents Tis the Season. The only real blind person at Christmas time is he who has not Christmas in his heart, said Helen Keller. But sometimes the holiday build-up results in a festive cholesterol that prevents Christmas from entering the heart. How much is all of this going to cost? What do I get for the person who has everything? Whose parents will we be at this year? And do we have to go out on New Year's Eve? You might be thinking about undergoing a Yuletide bypass, but it wasn't always like that, was it? Somewhere deeply ingrained within, Xmas excitement resides. And if not a well-engineered John Lewis commercial, something must be able to coax it out. Perhaps the erecting of a Christmas tree will get the baubles rolling. E. E. Cummings seemed to think so. Edward Estling Cummings was an early 20th century poet who broke the mould. He didn't just experiment with poetic form, he took a hacksaw to it and painted prose with the pieces. Though the bulk of his work followed traditional structure, sonnets and the like, many of his poems used unorthodox syntax, symbols, spaces and broken words to create visual sketches to aid the theme of each poem. But he didn't stop there. He'd invent portmanteaus and use verbs as nouns, such was the convoluted use of grammar, Cummings would force the reader to say the poems out loud for them to make sense. He was also a fantastic painter, and it's clear that visual stimulation was as important to him as the words themselves. It's been said he would sign his name using lowercase letters as a gesture of humility. And if you were to read this poem, Little Tree, off the page, you'd see the lines laid out in the shape of a Douglas fir whilst hearing a child consider its charm. Little tree, little silent Christmas tree, you are so little, you are more like a flower. Who found you in the green forest, and were you very sorry to come away? See, I will comfort you, because you smell so sweetly. I will kiss your cool bark and hug you safe and tight, just as your mother would. Only don't be afraid. Look. The spangles that sleep all the year in a dark box dreaming of being taken out and allowed to shine. The balls, the chains, red and gold, the fluffy threads. Put up your little arms and I'll give them all to you to hold. Every finger shall have its ring and there won't be a single place dark or unhappy. Then when you're quite dressed, you'll stand in the window for everyone to see and how they'll stare. Oh, but you'll be very proud and my sister and I will take hands, looking up at our beautiful tree. We'll dance and sing, Noel 
Noel. All that was missing was the angel on top of the tree, as two little angels look on in admiration. If they were angels. And there's a crimbo quandary. What if the little ones around us haven't been well behaved? We still remember the rules. We know the consequences. St. Nick doesn't abide petulance. Points win prizes. But for every bright shining example of good behaviour, we know that there's normally an equal and opposite reaction lurking in the darkness nearby. And darkness begets darkness. You would think that the threat of no toys on Christmas morning would be enough to straighten up any disobedient child, but according to German folklore, it isn't. German literature is entrenched in dark themes. You needn't look too far to find them, whether it be Goethe's Faust, Wagner's operas, or any fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm. A dalliance with darkness is always on the cards, and Christmas, or Weihnachten, is no exception. The fable has it in Germany that St. Nick has a helper named Knecht Ruprecht. Ruprecht's help involves asking children whether they can pray or not, and if they can, they are rewarded with sweets. If they can't, they're hit on the head with a stick. In other versions of the story, badly behaved little ones are given coal, stones, and sometimes sticks for their parents to beat them with. If they are good, then St. Nicholas will give them sweets, fruit, and nuts. But perhaps the worst sentence bestowed upon little rotters is them being stuffed into a hessian sack he carries on his back, and then sometimes thrown into an icy lake. That'll learn you. Here, the 19th century German poet and novelist Theodor Storm puts the story into verse. Though Storm was a leading figure in German realism, it seems in this piece he's willing to suspend disbelief in order to terrify some kids. While technically Santa's little helper, and yes, Knecht Ruprecht is the name given to the Simpsons dog in Germany, in this version of the story, the hooded denizen of darkness converses with the Christ child. Oh, du fröhliche, oh, du selige Weihnachtszeit, gesungen vom Nebequartett, Fede Sonnenrico. From out the forest I now appear to proclaim that Christmas tide is here. For at the top of every tree are golden lights for all to see, and there from heaven's gate on high I saw our Christ child in the sky. And in among the darkened trees a loud voice it was that called to me. Connect Ruprecht, old fellow, it cried. Hurry now, make haste, don't hide. All the candles have now been lit, heaven's gate has opened wide. Both young and old should now have rest, away from cares and daily stress. And when tomorrow to earth I fly, it's Christmas again, will be the cry. And then I said, O Lord so dear, my journey's end is now quite near. But to this town I've still to go, where the children are good, I know. But have you then that great sack? I have, I said, it's on my back. For apples, almonds, fruit and nuts, for God-fearing children are a must. And is that cane there by your side, the cane's there too, I did reply. But only for those, those naughty ones, who have it applied to their backsides. The Christ child spoke, and that's all right. My loyal servant, go with God this night. From out the forest I now appear to proclaim that Christmas tide is here. Now speak. What is there to be had? Are there good children? Are there bad? 
So with the children falling into line, all that's left is to appease a spouse. Close family. Not so close family. Friends, sometimes colleagues, the postman, the babysitter, anonymous neighbours. The list is endless. But a shopping spree later, a credit card bill thereafter, and all's well. Whether you're in the spirit of giving or nonchalantly fulfilling the tradition of handing over that once-a-year empty gesture, it can sometimes get a bit out of control. When did it get like this, you might ask? Was the spirit of Christmas not simply love, light, hope and peace? The comedian, actor, writer and former Goon Show member Spike Milligan took the Bob Geldof and Mitch Ure approach 14 years before Band-Aid were assembled. In this short poem, Christmas 1970, Following the form and style of Thomas Hardy's Christmas 1924, more on that later, he takes a satirical look at the infectious nature of consumerism and materialism at Christmas. A little girl called Sheila Javot said, Look at the lovely presents I've got. While a little girl in Biafra said, Oh, what a lovely slice of bread. A short and sweet reminder that it is that of a cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing, as Oscar Wilde wrote in Lady Windermere's Fan. So what are we doing with Christmas, and why are we doing it? Of course, the origin lies within the festival of the celebration of the birth of Christ, but everything after that seems like a cacophony of disputed declarations. Nobody has ever been certain of the actual birthday, for instance. Some believe the 25th was chosen because it's around the time pagans would celebrate the winter solstice, the Romans celebrated Saturnalia from the 17th to the 23rd of December, and then later during the Roman Empire, Dies Natalis Solis Invicti, meaning birthday of the unconquered sun, on the 25th. Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of light, starts on the 25th of Kislev, according to the Hebrew calendar. Because the calendar is lunar, Hanukkah can begin any time from late November to late December, and sometimes lasting into January. The earliest recorded celebration of Christmas was with the Romans in 336 AD, but was overshadowed by Epiphany in the Middle Ages. Catholicism brought it back into favour, only for Protestantism to brush it under the carpet in the 17th century due to its association with drunkenness and rowdy conduct. It was then brought back into favour by the Oxford movement in the early 19th century. During that time, Charles Dickens and other writers had reimagined the holiday as a time for family, giving and reconciliation as well as religion, but shifting the focus away from worship only. The religious and cultural significance was then, and is now, as broad as the seven seas. However it's interpreted, and however celebrated, for Sir John Betjeman one simple question remains. Betjeman was Poet Laureate from 1972 until his death in 1984. He mixed traditional poetic forms with contemporary observations. You'll probably know his notorious poem about the Berkshire town of Slough, Betjeman was also a founding member of the Victorian Society, a charity that supports preservation of Victorian architecture. And though Slough is a fairly scathing poem that stigmatised the town, it was likely written as a polemic piece targeting poor town planning and design rather than anything else. He later came to regret writing it. But in this poem, Christmas, he explores the perfunctory relationship between tradition and doctrine highlighting the one rhetorical question that defines not just Christmas, but faith overall. The bells of waiting advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again. 
and lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain in many a stained glass window sheen, from crimson lake to hooker's green. The holly in the windy hedge, and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar, font, and arch and pew, so that the villagers can say, The church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, and corporation tramcars clang. On lighted tenements I gaze, where paper decorations hang, and bunting in the red town hall says, Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers, as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers, and marbled clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember dad, and oafish louts remember mum, and sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say come, even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true, and is it true, the most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall? the maker of the stars and sea, become a child on earth for me. And is it true, for if it is no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bar salts and inexpensive scent and hideous tie, so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steepled shaking bells can with this simple truth compare, that God was man in Palestine, and lives today in bread and wine. Is it true? To the Victorian realist Thomas Hardy, it didn't seem to matter either way, Though famed for his novels Far From the Madding Crowd, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Jude the Obscure and the like, Hardy considered himself primarily a poet. The confusion somewhat owes itself to the fact that his first collected works were published after his novels. Heavily influenced by Romanticism, Hardy was critical of Victorian society and was outspoken in support of rural preservation. He was also against animal cruelty and a member of the RSPCA. When it came to religion, it's difficult to pin down his beliefs. Hardy was heterodox and often questioned the Christian God. Though he embraced agnosticism, his works also touched on deism and spirituality. But in this piece, Christmas 1924, he takes a clear swipe at the supposed ineffectuality of Holy Communion. Peace upon earth was said, we sing it, and pay a million priests to bring it. After two thousand years of mass, we've got as far as poison gas. Another poet who was at odds with the validity of the church was W.H. Auden. By no means an agnostic, though he spent nearly twenty years as a non-believer, at times he derided the church as well as defending it. At one point religion to Whiston Hugh Auden was nothing but vague uplift as flat as an old bottle of soda. It's also possible that being a homosexual, it put him at odds with the church during his formative years. In the 1930s, some of his works flirted with ideas derived from Marx and Freud, but coinciding with the advent of World War II, he rejoined the Anglican Church in 1940. But like many of his poems, Auden was frivolous by nature yet always succinct. His early works were satirical and ironic, 
but later in life he focused on history and religionless Christianity. His faith was personal and non-dogmatic. Those of us who have the nerve to call ourselves Christians will do well to be extremely reticent on this subject. Indeed, it is almost the definition of a Christian that he is somebody who knows he isn't one, either in faith or morals, he once said in a sermon at Westminster Abbey. I'm sure you'll know him for his moving poem, Funeral Blues, as made famous by the film Four Weddings and a Funeral, but in today's show, we'll take a look at his Christmas oratorio entitled For the Time Being. This long-form poem follows the story of the Nativity, set in a modern world using contemporary speech. All the major characters are present and are supported by a chorus and a narrator, and it's the narrator who brings the story to a close. In this passage, Auden explores the trivialization of Christmas and the mundanity of everyday routine, a routine that God will supposedly act in to redeem from insignificance. Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree. Putting the decorations back into their cardboard boxes, some have got broken, and carrying them up to the attic. The holly and the mistletoe must be taken down and burnt, and the children got ready for school. There are enough leftovers to do, warmed up for the rest of the week, not that we have much appetite. Having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted quite unsuccessfully to love all of our relatives and in general grossly overestimated our powers. Once again, as in previous years, we have seen the actual vision and failed to do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility. Once again, we have sent him away, begging, though, to remain his disobedient servant, the promising child who cannot keep his word for long. The Christmas feast is already a fading memory and already the mind begins to be vaguely aware of an unpleasant whiff of apprehension at the thought of Lent and Good Friday, which cannot, after all, now be very far off. But, for the time being, here we all are, back in the moderate Aristotelian city of Darning in the 815, where Euclid's geometry and Newton's mechanics would account for our experience, and the kitchen table exists because I scrub it. It seems to have shrunk during the holidays. The streets are much narrower than we remembered. We had forgotten the office was as depressing as this. To those who have seen the child, however dimly, however incredulously, the time being is, in a sense, the most trying time of all. For the innocent children who whispered so excitedly outside the locked door where they knew the presence to be grew up when it opened. Now, recollecting that moment, we can repress the joy but the guilt remains conscious, remembering the stable where for once in our lives everything became a you and nothing was an it. And craving the sensation but ignoring the cause, we look round for something, no matter what, to inhibit our self-reflection. And the obvious thing for that purpose would be some great suffering. So once we have met the Son, we are tempted ever after to pray to the Father Lead us into temptation and evil for our sake. They will come all right, don't worry. Probably in a form that we do not expect and certainly with a force more dreadful than we can imagine. In the meantime, there are bills to be paid, machines to keep in repair, irregular verbs to learn. The time being 
to redeem from insignificance. The happy morning is over, the night of agony still to come, the time is noon. When the spirit must practice his scales of rejoicing, God will cheat no one, not even the world of its triumph. Whatever your beliefs when it comes to Noel, it would be a shame for us to pack up the decorations and take down the tree before we savoured the spirit of Christmas. As Albert Camus said, we need the sweet pain of anticipation to tell us we are really alive. And even if you're sick of the commercials that started in November, dreading explaining your career and love life situation to your grandma, or nauseous at the idea of dad's turkey-flavoured flatulence, there's probably still a part of you that is just a little bit excited. And I don't think any festive poem has ever captured the excitement or magic of Christmas better than a visit from St. Nicholas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas, as it's commonly known, by Clement Clark Moore. Or was it by Henry Livingston Jr.? Authorship of the verse has been hotly debated, a Visit from St. Nicholas was published anonymously in the Troy Sentinel of New York on December 23, 1823, and continued to garner huge popularity. Moore, a writer and American professor of Oriental and Greek literature, claimed he'd written the poem and recited it to his children in 1822, but it wasn't until 1844 that he officially claimed authorship in an anthology of his works. By that point, Major Henry Livingston Jr., a farmer, surveyor and justice of the peace, had been dead for 21 years. His family had no idea of the claim at all. As the decades passed, Livingston's descendants made multiple claims to little attention, but it's only recently that statistical research and textual analysis of both men's poems have almost conclusively attributed the poem to Livingston. The poem itself had huge cultural significance, it gave rise to the idea that Santa Claus was a short, fat elf sporting a white beard, whilst also cementing the names attributed to his reindeer, save Rudolph, who didn't appear on the scene until 1939. Most notably, it shifted the story of St. Nicholas arriving on Christmas Day to Christmas Eve. Because some Protestant churches still saw Christmas as problematic, this minor variation allowed for a non-sectarian interpretation. Thus, a visit from St. Nicholas was embraced far and wide, and, as the Troy Sentinel said at the time of publishing, there is, to our apprehension, a spirit of cordial goodness in it, a playfulness of fancy, and a benevolent alacrity to enter into the feelings and promote the simple pleasures of children, which are altogether charming. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'The stockings were hung by the chimney with care "'in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. "'The children were nestled or snug in their beds "'while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, "'and Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap "'had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. 
The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the courses they flew, with the sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pouring of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose he sprang to his sleigh to his team gave a whistle and away they all flew like the down of a thistle but I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight happy Christmas to all and to all a good night Well, I'd like to thank you once again for downloading this podcast. Um, as mentioned in the inaugural podcast, um, a lot of other people that make podcasts ask for donations. Uh, they're registered to Patreon and so on and so forth. I won't be asking for that, um, sort of. If you would like to make any kind of donation, if you feel like this has been worth it or, or are indeed in the spirit of Christmas giving, then please head to www.rosemere.org.uk. That's www.rosemere.org.uk. Um, it's a cancer charity. They're doing brilliant stuff uh, in Preston. Um, and I'd be forever indebted if you made a donation. If you've really enjoyed this podcast and the last one, um, then subscribe. Um, it is a series. There's more coming. So much more to unfurl. I hope you have a fantastic holiday season, whatever you celebrate, however you celebrate it. 
Um, if you're missing a special someone this year, my heart goes out to you. Um, lots of love. Uh, but yes, have a good time. Have a good rest. Enjoy your Christmas time and have a very happy new year. And let's make the new year the focus of this episode's encore poem. Ella Wheeler Wilcox was an American poet of the mid-19th century. She was a popular poet rather than a literary poet, and her work is often derided in collections of bad verse. But for composing this phrase alone, laugh and the world laughs with you, weep and you weep alone, in her poem Solitude, she gets my vote. There's room for everything. Her poems are by and large cheery and upbeat, and heaven knows we've enough negative Nancys in print. So seeing us through to 2019 is Ella Wheeler Wilcox, with her New Year's poem, simply titled, The Year. Have a good one, everybody. What can be said in New Year rhymes has not been said a thousand times. The New Year's come, the old years go. We know we dream, we dream we know. We rise up laughing with the light. We lie down weeping with the night. We hug the world until it stings. We curse it then and sigh for wings. We live, we love, we woo, we wed. We wreathe our brides, we sheet our dead. We laugh, we weep, we hope, we fear. And that's the burden of the year.